0: Why we want to comment on that is because, again, as I mentioned, this is a section of scripture that really does demand our attention, our specific attention this morning. Some of you, and this is always a joy to me, come up to me ahead of time and said, what are you going to do with now the passages before us? I've been reading ahead, I'm looking ahead, I have no clue what's going on, I love that, I absolutely love that, because this is why we study God's word, right? What did we learn downstairs this morning? Every word inspired. So this has profit for us. This is so exciting this morning. So we, of course, have looked at chapter 20, and it contained the Ten Commandments. And we want to think about that set beside the case laws. We have the Ten Commandments, and now the case laws. So the Ten Commandments, remember by way of review, the overarching words of God. Those were the overarching words, the bedrock principles, the fixed law of God. Transcendent word, if you will. Those words revealed the timeless law of God, and here it is, really the eternal standard. Again, that transcendent moral authority, overarching everything standard. A standard, though, you will see beginning this week that has a very time stamped application hope that makes sense a time stamped in time application transcendent law but here is how it applies to this time specific applications if you will in time and space and that's why we call them case laws specific cases and your cue to them, look down at the text just by way of preview, because instead of the absolute of chapter 20, chapter 20 had you shall, you shall not, the absolute overarching. Here, chapter 21, and for the next couple of chapters, you see the usage of terms like this when, whoever, if, then, and then a specific case, and so on. There are specific circumstances and specific cases described. And then, of course, the various laws ascribed to them. And these are meant to provide examples of how God's principles could be applied to ancient Israel at that time. In other words, by case laws, if we could really pull this together, we mean actual circumstances that Israel would encounter back then. Cases that involve, for example, oxen, And donkeys and shekels and and vineyards and festivals. Very real ancient examples. All manner of things that would, would have comprised life in ancient Israel. Of course, these case laws wouldn't have been exhaustive. And I think even a simple reading, we know that. Not every case in life is going to be recorded here. And that's not what it's meant to do. They're not exhaustive, but they're a sample. An important sample for ancient Israel. Let me just give you one illustration of this. I hope it's helpful. You might have in homes today, maybe you have it on a plaque, maybe it's just understood in your family, you have house rules, overarching house rules. And one of those might be siblings respect one another. That's just the principle of the house, right? That's the overarching transcendent rule of the house. But it has a timestamp today. So for example, as many, many homeschoolers here Whether it is a pre-recorded lesson or an online lesson, they have the headphones on, maybe they're in a corner in a room, and the, the specific case law of that time might be you don't bother brother and sister when they're in class when they have the headphones on. Do you see that? Specific case for a specific time, overarching law. You wonder what the ancient Israelite would say. Well, you know, in that time, there's going to be a specific case law. The same way we shake our heads sometimes at Shekels and Donkeys, maybe they would shake their heads at specific cases today. I hope that makes sense. These are the specific cases. Again, we just talked about the modern cases here for Israel. This is what we're going to dive into now, the ancient cases. Now, some of those we more easily receive. Is it not true? When you think about the ancient case laws, we easily receive them. In fact, we don't even think about it. Oh, yes, laws for oxen, laws for vineyards. Of course, of course. Then, of course, there's some case laws we don't easily receive. Some, not so much. Like the text that is indeed open before you. So let us, Westmount, begin with a reading of it. Let's begin in verse 1. We're going to go down to verse 11. Exodus 21, verse 1. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food or clothing or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray you would take these words and open our eyes to see them. Pray that you would give us minds to receive what your text would be teaching us today. And Lord, as we do those things here and receive, let us live out again the truths, the applied principles of your word. Let us do that today. Father, we beg in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. Slavery, slavery, as you consider that concept, I just want you to stop for a moment, we have to do this, and and let's talk about what comes to your mind. Many images come to your mind when I say the word slavery, maybe it's a book you read, right, Uncle Tom's Cabin or something like that, maybe it's a movie, Amistad or others, right, you have these images of slavery that come to your mind, and yes, They are terrible pictures of the transatlantic slave trade, and that lasted from about the 16th century to the 19th century. And we're all very familiar with that wicked trade. The often brutal slave traders, slave owners, here it is, buying, selling, stealing, spitting, whipping, and on it goes... Beloved, in those cases, I just want to put a more appropriate word association together for you when that comes up. And it's this, it's evil. It's evil. Can we agree on that? Evil and wicked. That is what we call treatment like that. That is what we call when you treat people, image bearers of God, less than image bearers of God, it's it's evil and it's wicked. Anytime Any space, any manner, it is evil. We need to be clear on that to begin. And I want you to know and understand two things, very crucial things as we begin this section. Two things that we will look at, of course, slavery today, slavery in these case laws, but two things are very important as we descend. One, that slavery, modern colonial slavery, transatlantic slave, those evil pictures, that slavery is absolutely not how slavery is revealed in Scripture. It's not. Not even close. And the text before us will make that very clear this morning. In fact, let me just give you the preview. Exhibit A, look at verse 5. You have in this scenario a slave saying, I choose slavery forever. That's one scenario, we're going to look at that in a moment. So let's be clear on that. The modern evil uh, manifestation of slavery, the wickedness, is is not in Scripture. Two, Yahweh, our Lord, defines, He is the definer of how we are to treat fellow human beings, how we are to approach fellow image bearers. And with Yahweh, it's consistent. He creates... He preserves and he cares for life. His law reveals that. These are some bedrock principles we just went through in Exodus 20, and we're going to see them pop up in case today. In these case laws, you'll find no laws of oppression or beating. Or even, and I want you to grab this as we begin, we need to also note this, you will see nothing in here that is a promotion of racism. Whatever that would be and whatever flavor that would be. And I think we all are very familiar with that. No promotion of racism. In fact, when you think of transatlantic slavery, modern slavery in North America, I want you to think about this, and it is true. Racism was a product of slavery. You say, well, why is that? I thought it bred it. Well, for most of human history, people have had slaves. But here is the thing. For most of human history, people have had slaves within their ethnicity, within their nation. Asians enslaved Asians, Europeans enslaved Europeans. And so until, it wasn't until an ethnicity went and stole another ethnicity in the transatlantic slave that it became two ethnicities, and then, of course, racism was bred. It wasn't until modern, wicked, colonial slavery that there was this advent of racism flowing from it. Now, that's not to say there wasn't other wickedness, in other nation upon our nation, within nation slavery. But just to say, what we know is racism in a modern sense flew out of the modern wickedness of slavery. And again, that was, and we need to say this, racism and slavery particularly continues to be and always will be evil. It is absolutely evil. and I cannot be clear this morning. All men and women are created in the image of God. thus, thus of equal worth and dignity. can't say that again, or say it enough, I should say. All men and women are equal as image bearers of God. So, what of this text before us? How are we to understand it? Well, we're going to roll up our sleeves, and we're going to dig in, and we're going to unpack the many, beloved. Listen, the many helpful, insightful details that we can miss. So let's do this. And beloved, I I want this to be also an exercise of careful reading. Many of us know what this means. We often just read and we tick off, okay, I got Exodus 21, 1 to 11, I'm done. We're going to slow it down this morning and we're going to read Exodus 21, 1 to 11. Can we do that? So let's look again at verse 1. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. Now, stop there. Now, look at that word. There's your transition word. These are the rules. Look at that word. That's mishpat in the original. It means this. This is what it means. Regulations, ordinances, or, note this, judgments. In other words, we've turned from ten overall words. Do you remember? They were the ten words, the principles. And now we've turned and we've come to specific legal judgments. We've come to the mishpat. We've come to this point, the specific Moses, God says in this verse, these are the cases to set before Israel. And verse 2 does that. It introduces the very first case. It says this, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Beloved, this verse contains a couple details that are helpful for our preliminary understanding here. Let's deal with another word. You see it there. Slave. Slave, that word is ebed in the, the Hebrew, and it's a word, and I, I have to note it because it has a broad semantic range. By that, it, I mean it has many senses. The Hebrew language has this with many words, very robust language with many senses. And ebed is one of those words that can define slave, servant, employee, worker, and so on. I mean, it has many other senses. Very robust word, and that's very important. Because initially it helps us get past at least one dimension of our modern connotations of slave. There would be no such sense to modern slavery in what you see in Ebed. Not at all, not even close. Let me give you one example. One of those negative connotations we have of slavery is what? Permanent. No choice. You are a slave and you're always a slave. The transplanted plantation worker plucked from homeland wrongly has no end in sight. No idea when it will end, if ever. Permanent. Well, that is not the case here. In fact, look at the end of the verse. This slave, he shall serve six years and end in the seventh what? He shall go out free for nothing. And beloved, there's one thing we need to see. That's a term. That is contractual. And we know about contracts today, don't we? Many of you have work contracts and work arrangements. We know about nannies that are hired help and get to stay in the home. Stay in the home for terms. We understand that, in a in, in a temporary contract sense, it's the same here. It's the same thing here. Secondly, notice, it is not just the acquisition of a slave, but do you see that it's a Hebrew slave? It's very interesting we talked about the racism that flowed from colonial slavery as wicked men heading to another continent and people and enslaving them again that's not what's going on here not at all this is hebrews with hebrew slaves now it begs the question doesn't it and i know some of you are asking it i did well why would they do that why then slavery okay i get it it's within hebrews i get it's temporary but why would they do that I just lay before you a few of the reasons, and again, there are many others, but I hope this is helpful. Number one would be poverty. Poverty. Leviticus 25 describes a scenario where a brother becomes poor, and so he comes to another brother because he needs work and help. And what what he's going to do in this situation, he's impoverished, so he's going to submit himself to another brother. And you know what the text says? This is our God. The text says in Leviticus 25, even though it's a slavery concept, you treat him as a hired worker. That's our God. Even though he's coming to you and he wants to submit himself to you, you treat him properly as a hired worker. That's one. Secondly, is debt. In Second Kings 4, one, we have the account of the widow, remember, that she lost her two sons to creditors. Do you remember that? And she's crying out to Elijah, she's lost her two sons because of credit. And so for a term, the children would work to pay off the debt. Again, very Temporary. Another would have been restitution, specifically theft restitution. Look down in Exodus 22, verse 3. In fact, we're going to get there soon. This is coming. Let's pick up this account again. These cases now. Look at this case starting in verse 2. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there should be no blood guilt for him. But then listen to this verse 3. But if the sun has risen on him, there should be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. In other words, he's given over as a slave. Becoming a slave was the means of restitution for the thief who had nothing. Now, we should mention that there were scenarios for foreigners as well. Indeed, as a Hebrew slave, Hebrew was very much the word for the community, the word of the person. But we need to explain this too. That is, ethnically non-Hebrews became slaves to the Hebrews. And there were some scenarios, but let me explain that. Some were war captives. You have that in Joshua 9 and 1 Samuel 4. Some were simply sojourners wandering through and they wanted to stay. Note that in the Hebrew community. Now, it is true they were not originally Hebrew, but here is a very important detail. In every foreigner case, war captive or sojourner, they had to become Hebrew. What does that mean? It means, as we know in our Bibles, they entered the covenant community. That's right. Thus, they entered not only the community, they entered households. They didn't have a little wooden shack out back in impoverished conditions. They came into the household And the men became circumcised. This wasn't just a physical thing, it was a spiritual thing. They became circumcised. Then they became Hebrew by action. Part of the family. And this reality demonstrates something else very unique about slaves in Israel. That they were treated different. They were not treated harshly, at least by instruction from Yahweh. The community and the whole atmosphere of slavery was inclusion. This is key. Inclusion in Israel, not exclusion. Not those guys and that people and out back in them. Slavery in ancient Israel was bringing them in. It was inclusion. In fact, even more, there was punishment for any mistreatment. Look down at verse 26. Right in the same chapter we have this. Look at verse 26. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. And we think immediately of the wickedness in the transatlantic slave times. And here we have, right in God's word, a verse that would speak against that. Historically, by the way, it needs to be pointed out here as you look at chapter 21, that this fact... This Hebrew treatment from Yahweh, defined by Yahweh, would have stood in stark contrast to the surrounding nations of the times. The surrounding nations didn't have such kind, if you will, or protecting laws for slaves, not at all. Again, Israel, and we need to point out, Israel's God was different. So we move on to verse 3 and we see some scenarios presented. Look at verse 3 now. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. What we simply need to note here is the just practice. And it's the if-then scenario. Do you see that? If the slave comes into a fellow's, fellow Hebrew's house single, then he leaves single. If the slave comes in with a the wife, then they both leave together. He leaves with a wife. Again, the contrast to modern evil slavery is just obvious here. Slaves in the colonies often had little regard for family bonds. They were just placed. They were ripped apart, spouses ripped apart. It's not what you're seeing here. God here honors the conditions of entry, single or married. We continue with another scenario in verse 4. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children, shall be her master's and he shall go out alone. Now here's where we really get at it, because initially, I know, you see that scenario for many of you, and it's jarring, isn't it? It's emotionally jarring. What? He leaves his family? But two things, beloved. This is where we just really slam on the brakes, and we're going to look again, and we want to look closely here. First of all, he came into that home how? Single. And it was in that home, his master's home, that he received what? Wife and kids. In other words, the origin of that new life and family is from who? Master. Master lavished that on the servant. Thus, they were originally masters. Secondly, the slave doesn't have to leave alone. We can miss this when we read this again. It doesn't have to be that way. This is not the master saying, you know what, six years are out. Psh, there you go. And he said, well, wait a minute. What? A... No, we keep reading. This is this is what's so helpful. Look at verse five. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. And his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. If I can say this, and I may not be agreed by all, but I submit this to you this morning, you know, the injustice that is truly missed here is that the slave would want to leave. Now let's remove the slavery term. After entering in single, and all that community and family and wife and kids and longevity that's provided, and the care, why would he want to leave, presuming that tender care from master? He, at least for me, would be the one I'd want to question. And I would say to him, your master took you in, made you a family member, gave you a wife. And maybe after for you, young man, maybe poverty. Remember how impoverished your life was? I might say to him, remember your debt. I might say to him, remember you were a thief. And now with that new life and kids, you want to leave them and go and be alone? Beloved, I would submit to you only a perspective that's so focused on individual rights would miss it in protest here and miss the kindness of the master. Look at it again, to provide a home, a family, and a future. And you would say, as you should say, well, how do we know that the conditions were loving? How do we even know that he was treated right? I can't get those images out of my head. That's a good question. As we so often do in Scripture, we just keep reading. Verse 5. But if the slave plainly says, I can't wait to get out of this house. It's been tyranny and turmoil. No, what does he say? I love my master. Is that the transatlantic slave trade? I love my master. My wife and my children. And then look at this, aghast. I will not go out free. I will not go out free. Then look at the process. His master shall bring him to God. To God. And he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. This slave says, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children. And look at the authenticity of his love. And note this in our modern context he has the rightful freedom to go. You're free. You did your six year term, you're free to go. He says, I I will not go free. So I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to bore my skin and make it forever. This is a very different kind of slavery, isn't it? Doesn't it challenge our modern impressions of what slavery has been? Well, that was male slaves. Now the text turns to the female slave. Let's continue to track with it. Verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Here we have a scenario where a father gives his daughter as a slave. Not only that, but the daughter is given and there are no terms. So at least in this context, we have a different one in Deuteronomy that we'll look at later. At least in this context for the young lady, it's permanent. So some say here, this is a double whammy. This is not only slavery, but this is sexism. Well again, before we get carried with emotion or modern emotion let's consider a few things that for a daughter in ancient times it was about this thing for dad protect my daughter protect my daughter now again i want you to to put aside all the the stereotypes and the the slave images and you know, the feminist movement and all that, I want you to put aside for a moment, and I just want to submit one thing to you here. A dad that would care about the welfare of his daughter, which we're going to see in a moment, versus what you see today, I would suggest to you, in a much more real and tangible sense, this is lost today. I wish, again, let's remove slavery for a moment, more fathers cared about the welfare of their daughters spiritually oh I wish that as this young lady got older what was one way for the ancient Israelite to ensure protection and listen here's the key not just for six years not just for term and contract it was what marriage marriage yes to be one with a man to come under his roof in his headship so the father here is not treating his daughter as property that'll be accentuated in the text in a moment Or just making a buck off her. No, instead he is looking for her security. He is looking for his daughter's security. This really comes through and it will in a moment. Now the father does his best to find a good home and a life for his daughter. But ancient Israel as well is a fallen society. And this comes out in verse 8. Look at verse 8. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. Now, again, at first glance at the opening expression, she not pleasing him, you can think the emphasis is on the daughter. And again, that's very jarring, right, with an initial read. As if she is in the wrong somehow, but she is not here at all. Again, let's, let's look at this. No, for one, look at the word there for pleasing Again, as we think of the original language, it's not necessarily suggesting wrong. Again, this is a word with a range that is not just about wrong. Secondly, we keep reading, and look at the end of verse 8 again. Don't miss this. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, and here's the why, since he has broken faith with her. The one in the wrong in this scenario, beloved, is the master, The master's in the wrong. Look again. He's the one that broke faith. Broke faith. He is the one when a father came and was going to give his daughter, he is the one that didn't treat her accordingly. He broke faith. He is in the wrong. At this point, her welfare is his responsibility. And look at this protection. Just look at this. She was brought into the house to be a wife, but then the arrangement was broken. And nothing here at all suggests, think about the modern response to this. I really want you to grab this. What would happen in a modern sense? You know what, lady, get a really good lawyer. That's what it would be today. But that, that's the economy of Canaan. It's not the economy of God. No, the law says, look at the law. It says, first and foremost, verse 8, she is to be redeemed. And injustice has happened against her, redemption. In other words, this situation is to be made right. She's to be made secure. Then the stipulation is made that she is not to be given to a foreign people. This is amazing. And verse Yahweh protecting this young lady. Don't give her to a foreign people. Keep her in the covenant community. No, she remains in Israel. She remains in a house, and she will be with my people. If I could give you this simple parallel today, it would be like saying if there was such a similar analogy, I'm not going to give her over to an unbelieving world. I'm going to keep her within the church to protect her with God's people. No, God protects here in an overall sense, but then there's more. Look at this. In verse 9, we have the next course of action after the master's faithfulness. Redeem her, keep her in Israel. And here, the master's son. If you're wondering about the cross-generational thing, the potential wives would have been much younger. And it was not uncommon to have son and father, right? Often, uh, one might marry the same age of a young lady. Not uncommon in ancient Israel. So it's not uncommon here. Older men often look to carry on the line and enlarge the home, thus still in range for the son. This lady was well in range for the son. And you might say, but what if the son is just as wicked? What if he breaks faith too? You might say that. Well, again, we read the rest of the verse. He, the master then, after given to son, shall deal with her, look at this, as a daughter As a daughter, he shall deal with her as a daughter, more than a human being, more than a family member, more than those, as a daughter. Listen, if we want to bring emotions into this text, which we should never do, but for the sake of the argument, if we ever wanted to do it, here is a situation where I would submit to you, is there anything more protective than the father-daughter relationship? In every earthly sense, right? The father says, don't you dare. He gets out the baseball bat. He's protective. The big bear claw. No, don't you dare. And here's Yahweh says, you shall treat her as a daughter. Do you see how this is kind of blowing up? I hope it is your colonial slave impressions. This knows nothing of modern wickedness. Now, I want to be clear saying that. That doesn't mean there wasn't evil and wickedness possible in this. Let me be clear on that. We don't know. And of course, fallen humanity Evil always is afoot. But the system that Yahweh has given for ancient Israel at this time is laden with protection for the young lady. Yes, she becomes maybe a wife to the son, but even more, she will become a daughter. And now you say, well, remember, that master was faithless, right? So you're just tracking to the passage. You say, well, what about him? We have concerns. We have concerns. We know fathers that neglect their daughters. What about here? It could be the same. Well, look at verse 10. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food or clothing or marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, look at this, she should go out for nothing without payment of money. Even if he takes another wife, even if that house gets crowded, even if there's this looming neglect, don't miss the provision in verse 10. All the basics must be provided, including marital rights secured and God says if those are not done for her then look at this then she is released and note this for nothing from that wicked home that wicked master that wicked house economics she is released from it for nothing without payment of money and remember fathers would receive payments for daughters like a dowry right God says your actions alone have nullified that I'm letting her go free And this young lady receives one final layer of protection here from that man who was grossly unfaithful to her. And God says she is to be removed from that. Oh, if we had such hands today. Now that is how the law took care of female and male slaves in ancient times. And in light of any lingering associations with modern wicked slavery, and I am sure there's still some, Let me just point out a few other verses in the law, and I hope it's helpful as they pertain to slaves. By the way, what I'm about to say is nothing new. Many others have pointed this out, but it needs to be repeated. Scroll down to verse 16, chapter 21. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. In one verse... In one verse, an entire economy of colonial slavery is just shut down. Is that not true? You shall not steal another human being. So can, can we be clear as God's people today? Wrong, wrong, wrong. Here's one verse. One. I mean, there'd be many others, of course. We could go to chapter 20. We have a commandment about stealing. Slavery in the Bible here is not stealing human beings. Wrong at all times. Secondly, scroll down to verse 26. Now, we looked at this before, remember? Look at it. It's when a man strikes the eye of a slave, and then, of course, in 27, he knocks out the tooth of his slave, that there are consequences. And I repeat, going to this, to point out how different slave treatment is here. Again, consider, as I mentioned earlier, the differences with the law in ancient Israel versus what you see in the stereotypes and the actual treatment in the colonies today. But yet there's more. Turn to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 15, Deuteronomy 15. This would almost be like a slave's part two, we would say, Deuteronomy 15. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. And what I want you, One detail I want you to notice, I mentioned how at least in Exodus 21, for the young lady it was not permanent. Well, whatever's going on in that context, as you looked at, is going to be different to what we're about to read. Read with me. Look at this in verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man, or a Hebrew woman is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And then listen to this. When you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. This incredible passage here that reminds us of who God is vis a vis his people. The slave is released, remember, temporarily. But note this it's not empty handed, it's not just opening the door and you're free to go. Yahweh is. Very concerned about the welfare beyond that door of that slave. It's amazing. That is our God. A provisional God in all circumstances. And then this. Turn to Deuteronomy 23. I mean, we could really go on here in the law, but I'll just give you this one more. Deuteronomy 23, verse 15. This one's incredible. This is absolutely incredible. Verse 15. You shall not give up To his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. You see what's going on here? The slave has run away. The slave has run away, and by the way, in the Civil War, fugitive slave laws demanded a return of the runaway slave to the master. Right? That was law modern colonial slavery. And you know, you have to imagine that slave, knowing he's being marched back to master, what very likely was what? A death sentence. I mean, all of this, I got away, and it's like a death sentence. Beloved, not here. Not here. God says, don't send them back. Instead, look at this, take them in. You see that? Take them in. Bring them into community. Bring them into family. Bring them into your household. See that? And, and, and not only that... Yahweh says he chooses. The slave is going to choose where he settles. Incredible. He chooses. And by the way, see what Yahweh says? You won't wrong him. In fact, you shall not wrong him. Let him do that. Friends, in light of all that, consider how different this is. And you might even ask for a master. You might even say this. How desirable are slaves for the master? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, how desirable? How desirable? I actually never saw this before. You might say all kinds of slave rights in the law, all kinds of fair and equitable treatment. That's a great question. And I remind you at this point, because I know some of you are saying, what's still wrong, isn't it? It is absolutely wrong to treat a human being below the image of God. But I want to be clear about something, and I also have been clear, I pray, how evil modern slavery has been. But I want you to know this. The concept of slavery will always be. And if you're here this morning, you live in the economy of slavery. You do. I mean, there's senses of it that we really have to fight through and settle with in a modern mindset. But slavery is all around us. You would say, as we continue and we think now as we close with the New Testament... Who would desire that? Well, that brings us again to the New Testament where we also encounter slavery. Slavery, by the way, does not go away in the New Testament. It does not go away. In fact, it gets amplified in a very different way. Listen, God doesn't condone or approve of slavery as we know it, and I need to say that. Again, we, humanity, have practiced slavery as evil, But true slavery is not that. True slavery is not that. Gabe read for us from the book of Philemon. And it's the account, of course, of the runaway slave Onesimus. And I want you to turn there again. Philemon. After Titus, before Hebrews. And we want to consider this scene one more time because it very much is a New Testament account of a slave. We're going to pick up this account. Remember, and, and the irony is just so rich in this account, Philemon, who very likely had the church of Colossae in his house, had a slave, his name was Onesimus, and by all accounts, he got away, he ran away, and very likely ran to Rome, and lo and behold, in the sovereignty of God, guess who he runs into? The Apostle Paul. Under a sovereign God, that's how it works. You got nowhere to go, Right? write to the Apostle Paul, and lo and behold, you know what Yahweh does? He regenerates Onesimus' heart. And they have an interaction. They maybe spend time together. And very likely, Paul pens a letter to his good friend Philemon, who holds the church of Colossae in his house. And very likely, and we're implying many of these things, he puts the letter in Onesimus' hand and he says, you go back to your master. Do you just feel that? You go back to the one you ran away from. And deliver him, again, what Gabe read for us this morning. Let's pick this up in verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment, and feel that likely Onesimus standing right in front of him. He may look up at this point in the letter, and there he is, right there. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. Amazing statement. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Maybe he's thinking about the law in Deuteronomy. Legally, I can keep him, right? Because he's come to me. You know your law, Philemon. I can keep him. I could do that. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. That's providence. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh. And then the Lord, Paul says, with the law in view, I don't have to do this to send him back, but I am now. Why? Because now, look at it again. He is more than a bondservant. There's more here. Look at that word bondservant, which basically every translation, save one or two ones, renders this as such. That's the Greek word doulos. And bondservant is not really an accurate translation at all of that word. Because that's the Greek word for slave. Slave. When you see bondservant almost every time in the New Testament, it should be slave. Of course, Onesimus, as a slave of Philemon, is absolutely the context here. So even more, this should be slave. And Paul says here, if we could say this then, I'm sending him back, Philemon, more than your slave. See that? I'm sending him back as a beloved brother. And look at verse 16, in the Lord. Now, listen, brothers and sisters, that does not mean Onesimus has been released from slavery entirely. We cannot miss this as we close. It doesn't mean he's been released from slavery entirely. Fairy tales today would say that. Onesimus is free, and he's leaping through the daisies or something like that. He's free. Oh, he's been released for sure under the law from being a slave to Onesimus. That, the, the law, the case study laws demonstrate demonstrated that. And yet more, now as a brother in the Lord, and here's what we learn in the New Testament. If he is regenerated, if he's a brother in the Lord, he's released from another master. And it's what? Sin. The bondage and the slavery of sin, Onesimus. Now you are truly free to that master. You are free God found Onesimus, regenerated, and saved him. But again, like Israel, and let's not miss this, God did not free Onesimus from bondage to just run off and indulge in his freedom. And here again, we're reminded again of what we learned in Exodus. God alone. God says to sin incarnate, to Pharaoh in Egypt, what does he say? Let my people go. Why? Why? that they may serve me. This is so important. This is not freedom from slavery. No, beloved, this is a transfer of allegiance. This is slavery replacement. One master for another. Oh, how the world would hate that, right? The world hates that. I want to be free. I want to be free. Yes, Christian, we are not free men and women in the modern sensibility of things. Praise God we're not, by the way. Praise God. Of course, we're free from the penalty of our sin. We're free from eternal punishment in hell. And again, we say, praise God. But we are still slaves. We are slaves to the one who bought us. We are slaves to Jesus Christ. We are slaves to the one that paid the dowry, to the one that ransomed was ransomed for us. We are his. This is precisely Paul's point in Romans 6, verse 17. Listen to his rejoicing. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed, and having been set free from sin, listen to this, have become slaves of righteousness. There it is. That's your allegiance now. New master. Praise God. Not sin, but righteousness, because your master is Christ Jesus. That's not just your Savior, but your Lord And Westmount. I pray this morning, this has been my prayer this week, that for you, your notion of slavery has been redeemed biblically with just some time in the text. I pray you see that we are all slaves. Every human being is a slave. Everyone. And the question is, who is your master? I pray you see that for you, regenerated saint here this morning, that your slavery was once to poverty, to sin, to death. And then you were bought. You were purchased and you were redeemed. And I pray you see that your new master gave you a home. He gave you a home. He gave you a family and he gave you hope. Do you remember when you had no hope? Your master gave you hope. Which I would submit to you is all the more precious today, is it not? And I pray like the cry of the slave we looked at today, when the time comes, and the time is coming, when you're confronted with leaving the house, the door is wide open and you can leave of your own accord. I pray when the time comes and many are renouncing their master, they're punching in their six years, and they're saying, I'm gone. Oh, how I pray your cry will be the same as that Hebrew slave. I pray it will be. Westmount, that's my prayer. I pray it will be. I pray that you will say on that day, I will not go. I will not go. I love my master. I will not go. And I will be his slave forever. I pray that is your cry. Our Father, our Master God, we pray but that would be true of us in the days ahead. Oh, gracious Father, may we be found faithful. May we not take our six years and run. Oh, God, I beg and pray that you would enable and empower and equip all of us to love you and to cling to your doorpost. And Father, we thank you that You have enabled our hearts to do that. Lord, we are all very mindful in these times of what we would do left to our own devices. But God, we thank you. You're a gracious master. Thank you for the life you've given, the family, and the hope. May we live them faithfully. To your glory we pray. Amen.